will be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. I told you that I'm going to be preaching through a few select passages in Mark for a couple of weeks here. And I believe next week, uh, a couple of weeks, I'll be picking up a, uh, a small series leading into Easter about Jesus as he is revealed in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we'll look forward to doing that. But for today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. I'll be looking at a passage, a paragraph in that chapter that begins in verse 27 and goes down to verse 33. Um, help you understand where this is going. Let me, let me try to give this to you. Um, we were up here Thursday night talking with the... Um, that we were, I wasn't, I was sitting and listening, but uh, the deacons were meeting with some of the committee chair people, and we were in that meeting, and good conversation, good stuff to be reminded of, some of the administrative necessary details that have to be handled, as well as I think that uh, Chad did a good job of explaining the spirit of the, the attitudes that need to come in with uh, the work that we do as a church. That was brought up, and something uh, um, I had said was brought up in that meeting. Now I'm just going to call that out for saying no, no. We've already called in the mate in the parking lot over. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We're good. He won. Um, but seriously, um, it was brought up that I made a comment and something I stand behind. But I bring this up because I. I don't know if some of y'all are talking about it, and that's fine. You can talk about it all you want to because this is what I said. I said um, in another meeting that was brought up in this meeting on Thursday night that uh, there are, one of the, the concerns in this church is that there are groups and factions and sort of people going in different directions. And, um, you know, just to explain that, I mean, there are some people who want, you know, if y'all don't know this, y'all ain't talking to each other. I'm just telling you. Some people that want to uh, want to have more what I call traditional worship. Some people want to have more contemporary worship. Some people want to kind of get to the next rung and you know push things forward, be progressive, if you will. I'm not talking about doctrinal, I'm talking about you know new programs and new buildings and things. But others are like, I don't know, maybe we need to be a little more conservative on that. But just different things like that. And I said, you know, that that's something that's real here, and certainly that is what the role, one of the roles of a pastor is to unify that and, and to, to guide in that direction. But I, but I bring this up in this context because, one, I just want to tell them I'm talking to you. I'm not just talking about generic facts or doctrines. I'm talking about y'all. and be real specific. I'm talking to you. And I've seen this. Not, it's not unique to Ellisburg Baptist Church. Unfortunately, I wish it were, but if it were, we could just blow this button up. Um, that shouldn't even come out of my mouth. I'm being, I'm being perceived. Y'all know I'm being ugly, and I'm sorry. I'm removed, but I'm too far. Unfortunately, it's not unique here. It's, it's in a lot of places. And I've, I've seen what, what I'm going to put into two big camps here. There's two opposing forces that I have seen in most of the churches that I've been involved in. And I'll put them into two big things. One is the traditionalist. And by the way, you may sit there and say, well, Matthew, which one are you in? This is my camp. This one says, this is my camp. I'm not saying this like the rest of us. I'm in the traditionalist camp. We like it the way it's always been. Because we know that, <laughs> we know that when Moses led the children of Israel into the land of promise, he sang out of red back hymnals. 
We know that sort of thing. That's the way we do it, and we do it all the way back. And then there's the progressivists. And they're looking for the next big thing, whatever that happens to be. They're, they're on to the next big thing. But it shows up, and I, I, I made the joke about that in books, but it shows up in everything from musical preferences to what the expectations of a, a minister or a pastor are to the growth style, growth, uh, um, growth methods, how we're going to grow the, the congregation, to sermon styles, how, how, how we're going to preach. I mean, all these things are simple. I mean, everything. It shows up in all these different ways. And both sides have a, have a good argument. And some of them, occasionally, every now and again, will stumble across a Bible verse to back themselves up. Occasionally. Occasionally. But they will, and let's just be honest about this thing, they're going to have a hard time coexisting. At some point, somebody's going to win. And it's not necessarily good that either side wins. They do, unfortunately, have two common beliefs, main beliefs that are common to both. I want you to hear this. The first belief is that God works with somebody somewhere, in some way, with something. It all depends on which, where you are as to what that thing or place is. But God worked in some way and it's something that they have experienced or they have seen and that's what they're looking for. They want God, they saw it happen and they want it to be where they are. The other belief and that's, by the way, that, that first belief is just one way you can prove is bring back the good old days. Okay? We saw it before one again. The other belief is that God approves of whatever it is I like. If I like it, me and God are on the same team. We, we all believe that. I agree with you, sir. Absolutely wrong. But that is how we think. That's exactly how we think. And in doing these things, what we've done is we have made God in our image. We have taken God from his position in heaven and we have put him down on our level and saying, me and God are buds. Now, I know he's your friend. I know he loves you. Please don't misunderstand me. For he's God and you ain't. We're different. We followed a path, an old path, in fact, not a new path. That we're working to build this idol, this image, and call it God. By the way, it's from God. I Exodus chapter 32. Aaron, he's got a big old golden path. And he says, that's the thing that brought us across the Red Sea. Of course, God hated that. God judged the people for that. You understand, this is not the right path to go down. So it's not me. It's not gone, and I want to make sure, as I told you at the outset, that's not just something that's out there. It's in here, too. And I believe in this passage, the reason I'm, I'm going to this passage, because I believe this is exactly what Jesus exposes as what I'll call half-hearted discipleship. You, you can identify, as I do, with the traditionalist side. Or you can identify as it's fine to do with the more progressive side, but it does not matter. The right answer is neither of those sides. It is to follow after the one true God. His name is Jesus. I want you to see this in Mark chapter 8. But before I do, I just need to ask God to help me. Would you pray with me, please, Lord? I need you. I need you to make sure that what comes through here is your voice. Your message, your call to repentance, your call to salvation, 
pray that that happens. Use my personality where it's helpful. Use my thinking where it's helpful. Use my experience and my voice where I'm helpful. But Lord, I know you can use rocks and donkeys to serve through your message. You don't need me. But God, please use me. And that's in Jesus' name. In verse 27 of our text, Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked his disciples how folks think about him. Look what he says there. Jesus went out and his disciples into the country of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? How do folks think about me? What are people talking about? What do, what do they think? How do they, how do they, how do they see me? The answer they give him, let's read there in the next verse, verse 28, they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. That answer is, by the way, the same answer that was given, if you go back a couple of chapters, in chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15, um, there's man in here, he's king, and he hears about Jesus preaching, and immediately Herod, by the way, was the guy who took John the Baptist's head off. Immediately, he thinks that must be John the Baptist who's come back. I'm serious. It was John come back. And then there are other people that you, they, they, in John, or rather Mark 6, that talks about the other people were saying, well, maybe it's one of the prophets, or maybe it's Elijah, Elias, or Elijah. So this is the same answer. This is the answer. Apparently, this is the answer that's going around a lot, is my point. The common thread, if you go back and look at John the Baptist, the other prophets and Elijah, there's one common thread these guys have. They don't mind speaking truth to powerful men. Remember what? Y'all know the story of John the Baptist? Let me just briefly tell you. You know what John the Baptist did? He told Herod, man, I know that you think it's okay that you took your brother's wife from him and y'all are having an illicit and moral relationship, but God doesn't like it. And Herod said, I'm sorry, you can't live anymore. Elijah, you remember Elijah? Elijah goes into Ahab and he says, God said it ain't going to rain. And it didn't rain. Even the enemy got his way on everything. He, was, he literally saw, he Ahab saw a vineyard. He said, I want it. And he killed the man that owned it to get it. He'll get whatever he wants. And God, God used Elijah to walk in and say, No, it's not going to rain for, for three, 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 three that year. It's not going to rain. And it didn't rain. And that's what the prophets of the Old Testament, that was what they're known for. They would walk into very difficult situations, say hard things, say things that needed to be said, do things that needed to be done, address sin that needed to be addressed. And the people were saying, maybe Jesus is one of them. We like that. Because people always remember the past fondly, don't we? We do. We want preachers like Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Adrian Rogers. These are the kind of preachers we want. Forgetting the fact that we didn't listen to them while they were here. We want revival like we had not too long ago in this area in the, in the Burlington revival. Or I remember more distinctly for myself the way the churches felt a revival. The church that I was involved in had a bit of a revival, not necessarily a revival meeting, but an actual spiritual revival that happened during the Gulf War, right after the Grand Baptist. 
And in 9 11, there was a resurgence of concern, spiritual concern. I want to see that kind of stuff. The stuff that I read about that happened in the Civil War, after during the Civil War, when there were people that were coming to Christ by thousands. The Great Awakening. That, that's the kind of stuff we want to hear about. We hear about those things and we want those kind of things. This is so y'all know what I'm talking about here. For me, there was a period in my life from 1996, probably more like 98, 2000, but in that era, to about 2005, for me, there was a time that I was at Freedom Baptist Church in Rural Hall, North Carolina. And there was an atmosphere and a spirit. Nobody else might have felt it. If you thought anybody else, they might have known, but I felt something when I was going there with that time. Something was happening. So much so something was happening that I felt the need in 2005 to surrender to God's call on my life, as clear a call as I've ever had that I need to be a preacher of the gospel. That's what I, I want to see that again. I, we want society back the way it used to be, whatever it was for you when you were growing up, usually the 50s or we hear about from the 1800s the way the culture used to be or, or whatever that is. There's some, there's some glamorous time. For me, for me, it's the way I grew up. I even get upset with my kids sometimes. I remember one of the things, me and Vanessa will talk about this all the time. Something my child, one of my children will do, and I'll say, we have never done that when we were growing up. My mom would kill me. You know, that, that's the, the, I would say this as if, as if somehow back then, everything was perfect. And let's be honest with you, it wasn't perfect and neither were you. I wasn't, y'all might have been, but I wasn't. I can tell you that. We want statesmen in control of our governments. Depending on if you're more of a historian or a more a partisan of this moment, it might be you look back at people like Abraham Lincoln or Robert E. Lee. You know, so these are the kind of people that we wish to have in power Kennedy or Reagan or Obama or Trump. Whatever your thing is, but we say we need more of that. That's what I want. But as I say, we're so quick to forget their failings and our ingratitude. What we want, and this is what the people wanted, they wanted Jesus. They saw him, they, they were literally walking with him, and they wanted him to be like something in the past. Are, are you understand what they're saying? We want Jesus to be the next great. Fill in the blank. Whatever that is. But I want you to see what Jesus does to these men. They, they turn around in verse 29 and he says to them, But who do you say? Who say you that I am? What Peter's answer is, look at what he says, Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. He says, You are the one that we're looking for. You are the Christ, the, the promised one, the Messiah. He is, that word Messiah, that concept of Messiah, is not that he is the next best thing or the next big thing or the next recapitulation of the past. He's not the, he's not the next David. He's not the next Moses. That's not what they were looking for. They weren't looking for more of the past. The Messiah was the greater, the long-for greater one. When you go back to the Old Testament and you see prophets and you see priests and you see kings, and there are good men among those numbers, people that they, the Israelite nation, would have honored. They look back at them and they say they're great, they're good, and they would honor them. But if you really analyze what goes on with them, look at someone like David, the greatest king. That man was a mess. 
to kill people and just because he felt like it. He, he was immoral with a woman that was not even, he already had about three, seven, eight, six, seven wives, and he, got it, he was immoral with another woman. Solomon, how many wives and concubines did this man have? I mean, what if, I mean those are just skimming the surface of the, of the immoral, the corrupt nature of these people. I bring this up to simply say that Jesus is not the next fill in the blank. He is the standard of what is needed. He is the standard of what is right and wrong. He is the one by which we would measure how good was Moses, how good was David, how good was Adrian Rogers, how good was President Lincoln, how good was fill in the blank with your church and your moment and your revival and your time, that thing that you want most. You only know it is good because you know how good Jesus is. That's the thing that we should be looking for. Not bringing back the good old days. If they weren't so good, can I just promise you that? I'm not that old, but I know that my good old days weren't as good as my mind thinks they were. In fact, if I'm honest about it, I compare them to the ultimate point. It tells me I'm missing something. I'm lacking something. And Jesus, he is not coming back to make America great. He is not coming back to build this nation back better. He is not doing those things. Jesus is doing something altogether different. I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 19. You've got your Bible. Do this. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. I want you to hear this. This is Jesus. This is my Jesus. This is his coming back. This is what he's doing. God, the revelator, sees heaven open. Verse 11. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Let me just stop right there real quick. There's some good politicians in this world, maybe one or two. You know, one of them, I'm giving them the name faithful and true. There's some good men that I would call, I would call friends, in fact, that are preachers, pastors, men of God. And they might be faithful, but I'm going to give them that name. Because I know that they are failing as the next person. There's only one who deserves the name faithful and true. And in righteousness, it says, He that judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He has power over everything. That's what those crowns represent. And he had a name that no man knew but he himself. He's so full of mystery. It's so much more than Jesus you will ever understand. He is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. I happen to believe I'll be among those numbers, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But I think I'll be behind you. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's my Jesus. That's not bringing back good old days. That's not a throwback to something that we used to have and we need to have back again. That's 
something brand new. That's a holy thing. There is no comparison to who Jesus is. And in fact, we do a disservice to our God by going back to some rest, some memory from the past, as good as it might be, and say, I wish we had that again. Or some experience we've had somewhere else. It's like, I saw it over there. Wish we'd do that here. If you stop and say, I want Jesus to be present, He's going to do a whole new thing. He's going to do a brand new thing, a thing that is above anything you can ask or think. That's who He is. He is Messiah. He is Christ. He is God. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And please understand, when I say He's going to do a whole new thing, I know that I read out of Revelation, so we think immediately, yeah, eventually that's going to happen. But don't understand, don't misunderstand, He is going to do that ultimately, but He will do that in our temporal time too. If we will let God be God and us back up and just follow behind Him, we will do that. I think we will see God do amazing things. But you know what we do, what we try to do? We like to put our hands on the plow because what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I just confess my sins. That's the only thing I know to do because y'all don't tell me your sins. I wish I could tell y'all, but I can't tell y'all. I don't tell mine. I had that experience that I told you in 2000, from about 2000 to 2005, the Freedom Baptist Church in Rome Hall. One of the greatest men that I know, J.P. Dowdy, my father-in-law, was passed at the time. There was an atmosphere in that church. We used to have things called tent meetings, as they called it. And there was about three or four days during the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, Sunday night. And they would come and they'd have special preaching, revival, kind of, you think of. But they would have a meal, great singing. It was amazing. I don't know how else to say it. I'm just trying to say what I try to do with all that. I want to recapture that in some way. I want that to be that. But you know what I'm missing when I do that? But God's got a brand new thing that He's got in His mind. He's had a purpose. I'm, and don't hear me slam that by any means because that was good stuff. God had His purpose at that moment in time. But He's doing a brand new thing. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Christ. The one that we long for, one that we wait for. He is not taking us back to the good old days. He's given us the right here, right now, what He wants us to have. Let's follow Him. And of course, as I said there, He says uh, in verse 20, uh, 29, Peter says that thou art the Christ. We know from another passage in Matthew chapter 16, a very a parallel passage to this, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17, Jesus approves of His answer. He tells them that the only way you know this because it was revealed to you by God, so we know it's the right answer. But he proves his answer. You go to verse 30, he charged them that they should not tell, they should tell no man. So he said, Now's not the time to share this news that I am the Christ. It's not the time. It's kind of chill out right now in this way. But he does go in verse 31, he starts explaining the meaning. He said, I'm the Christ. This is what this looks like. This is what the Christ has actually come to do. Look what he says there in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says, listen, y'all, I'm the Christ, yes, but that means some stuff. Because Jesus is suffering servant. And if he must suffer, is what it says there. When I think of servant, I think of somebody who does stuff for me. I need something. Yeah, yeah. My glass is not, not full this morning. I'd like some dessert. I'd, I'd like something. That's what I think of. 
that's not that Jesus is the kind of suffer as rather than suffer that he is. Jesus is the kind of servant that was weak and afflicted for us. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He's a suffering servant. It goes on to say that he's going to be rejected. He is a rejected priest. When I think of a priest, I think of somebody who's stately and honorable and respectable. And it's certainly a, a nod towards the traditions and the, the way we're supposed to do things. That's what I think of as a priest. I think a lot of times we think of that. If you understand that he's a rejected priest, he was a priest that was out of sync with the religious people of his day, the religious leaders of his day. He was out of sync with their traditions. I talked to you about that last week. And he actually said, you know those traditions y'all do? They're five, but when they go against God, you miss the boat. He's actually going and he speaks that truth to these people about the fact that they are worshiping the wrong God and that's out of sync and they reject him big time. They see him coming and they say, no thank you, we want none of it. And ultimately we know that the people who were the religious of his day were the ones who actually put him to the Romans to get him there to the cross. He is to be killed. He's a crucified king. When I think of a king, I think of somebody who's legal, glorious, victorious, reading over everything. All of his enemies shaking in their boots behind, oh, we'll leave it for long. And that's not the way it is here. This king bears my shame and dies on a cross for me. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is done, so he openeth not his mouth. Yes, it does say in there, and it's almost sort of an afterthought in verse 31, Jesus says he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. We know there is a victorious resurrection to come. Thank you, Jesus. We got Easter to celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for coming out of the grave. But don't ever miss that Easter never happens unless there is a cross. There is no victory in resurrection if there is no if there is no shame of death. And Jesus dies on the cross. Now I'm saying things that in some ways I'm bet I'm sort of preaching to the crowd. He's around no Jesus died. Yeah, I get that. But I want you to see Peter's reaction. That's what he says in verse thirty three. Verse thirty two. And he spoke that saying openly. So what he says in verse thirty one, he says pretty pretty openly that it's God away from some people. Verse thirty two, the last part. And Peter took him, he takes him off himself, and began to rebuke him. Peter actually fusses at Jesus for saying this stuff. Now, if you understand this, Peter had some expectations of the Messiah. He just told us in verse 29, Thou art the Christ. I know you're the Christ. You're the one I'm looking for. But when Jesus says, listen, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to do all those things. When he explains that, Peter gets upset with him. He wants victory. He wants peace. He wants prosperity. He doesn't want a bloody death. So last thing he wants. But I want you to understand, in fact, go with me to verse 33, and when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus said, you're wrong, Peter. You're wrong. But I want you to know this. Jesus didn't come 
to give you your best life now. Peace didn't come to make you feel good. He didn't come to fluff up your self-esteem. He didn't come to applaud your faith. Oh, what a good Christian you are. That's not why Jesus came. That's not why he came. He didn't come to pat you on the head and say, you're okay. Everything you're doing, everything you think is fine. As long as you follow after me and kind of identify with me, we're good. In fact, if you'll just tell people that you like me, I'll bless you. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for your sins, to stand in your place. And let me tell you, that is the weakest thing that could be done. This, by the way, is the accusation that the atheists will throw at those that believe like we do. So why did God, why did God have to have a bloody sacrifice? They will say that. But what he did is he is coming to come in the weakest possible way in our, on our behalf to die for our sins. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. I can't think of a weaker position nailed to a cross. I can't think of a weaker position nailed to a cross without, without any dignity, nailed to a cross without any glory, without any pomp, without any circumstance. Everybody's standing there disgusted to look at you, and even the God of the universe, the Father, looks at him and Crushes him, rejects him, turns his back to him. Jesus on the cross literally saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing weaker than that. And Peter's saying, No, man, I don't want that. I want a king who's going to win it all. I want a king who gives me my hopes and my dreams. But Jesus came to die for you in your place. His victory comes through suffering. His victory comes through weakness. His victory comes through shame. His victory comes through those lowest places. And in fact, if you follow after him, there's going to be more. Look what he says in verse 34. It's not the text I was going to focus on, but I'm going to skip over there. Verse 34, he says, And he called the people unto him, and his disciples also said unto them, Look what he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is, he is our king, and he is the victorious one. We just read that revelation that he's going to come after suffering, he's going to come after shame, he's going to come after pain. And if we follow after Jesus, we're fine enough to follow after a suffering Savior. Well, you see this last thing on my clothes in verse 33. I was saying that Jesus rebukes Peter, and this is what he says to him. He says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Jesus is ultimately questioning who Peter is really following. He says, Get thee behind me. I can take an interpretation of this passage where Jesus is not necessarily calling Jesus outright of Peter the devil himself. That he is calling him being of the devil, an adversary, one who is opposing Jesus. That's my interpretation here. And then by getting behind me, it's not, I don't want you out of my sight. I probably tell people that, get out of my sight. I'm so mad that you get out of my sight. So I don't think that's what he's saying there. Again, I don't think you're wrong if you think that. I just, my interpretation is a little different. I don't think he's saying get behind me. I think he's saying get in line behind me. Get back in line, soldier. Get back in line, soldier. 
if you could find me, get back in formation. You, Peter, acting like you're in charge, you're out of line, sir. Get back in line. Get me behind me. And he calls him Satan. That word Satan, we know Satan is the devil himself, and I believe that there's an uh, appropriate application there. But also that word simply means adversary. One who opposes, one who is against. And he's telling you, listen, you're being influenced by the natural desires, demonic forces, and you're out of line, sir. Get back behind me where you belong and stop being my adversary. He says, because thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men, your allegiances are wrong. Your allegiances are all wrong. Give you another angle on this. James says this in James 4 4. Talking to a church there, he says, You adulterers and adulteresses. How's that for you? You people on your side. Call all whoremongers. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Jesus sets up a pretty stark contrast here, as James does as well. If you're either with me or you're against me, Jesus doesn't give a progressive or conservative perspective. He doesn't give right or left. He doesn't give Republican Democrat. He doesn't give Sadducee Pharisee. He doesn't any of these little dichotomies that we like to come up with. He doesn't do that. He says you're either with me or you're not with me. And he says, Peter, get behind me. Stop being against me. Quit falling in love with the things that the world has to offer. You're my disciple. Not the world's disciple. You're my disciple. See, Jesus doesn't allow sex sitting. He doesn't give us that option. He doesn't. And step over here real quick. And I'm going to read this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to say this. This is real important. Y'all listening, right? Yeah, yeah. Like good, good. And he says, be my I want to get some room here. I want to get some room. I think the Lord does a good job of I think it is entirely possible that a person could do what we call saved and be a bad disciple. You know what I'm saying? I think Peter's an example here. I think God gets Peter on the right track. So I'm not trying to question whether or not your heaven is your home. I'm asking, are you in line behind your master? Now that might mean for some of you, you may say, sure, I am in line behind my master, and his name is Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you to look at the Savior and understand you need him to save your soul. But I just want to make sure I'm super clear on what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who saying they follow after Jesus. And I think, don't think I'm preaching to the choir on that. And if I'm not, that's between you and the Lord, and I pray that the Lord will convince your heart and it will come to Jesus. I want to invite you to Him. I'm going to do that just a minute. But I'm going to assume I'm preaching to the choir that y'all love Jesus. Okay? There's at least four of you to do. Thank you, Lord. Glad that there's at least a handful. But seriously, I hope y'all love Jesus. But if that's the case, it's, it's either your hopes and dreams are his narrow path to holiness. That's the options that you have. You can't have both. 
So I ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus or are you a devil? You see, disciples, disciples look to Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. But they see him as the, the reason that they're doing what they do. He's the one that they're following after. Whereas devils are looking for something better, whether it's in the past not in the world. Disciples fall in love with Jesus. They make it so that the desires of their heart are the desires of his heart. They find out what he wants. Just like what I try to do, I'm not perfect at this, but I'm probably the best person in this room uh, on this. Uh, but I want to make this woman this one right here, the, the Vanessa, not the skinny, but this Vanessa. I want to make her the happiest person I can imagine. And I'm not going to do that by doing what I want. I'm going to figure out what she wants. Man, that's hard. Let's just tell you, I don't even know. I don't think she knows most times. But I'll try to figure out what she wants and give it to her. You understand what I'm saying? If you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you're going to stop worrying about what you want. You're going to try to find the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and you're going to follow after Him. The devil, on the other hand, the, the devil, instead of one that's the disciple, but one that's the devil, he's going to try to find out how Jesus can give us what we want. How can Jesus make me happy? That's demonic, that's devilish, that's of this world. The disciple will trust the suffering Savior for their salvation. The devil thinks they're going to be okay without a cross. The disciple knows that Jesus is strong, especially when they're weak. But the devil is going to try to figure it out on his own, work it all out by himself. The disciple will fall in line behind Jesus. Yes, sir, I think he's there. They will do what they're supposed to do. The devil and he talks to God. I don't tell God what to do. Get mad at him when he doesn't do it, by the way. The question really comes down to who are you going to follow? He's calling you. Jesus is calling you. He's not calling you to relive the past or to have a better life. That's not what he's calling you to. I don't think that's clear. It's not what he's calling you to. He's calling you to something so much better than you can't even imagine. He's calling you to put your trust in Him alone. And it's either worth it or not. And if He's not worth it, then I disagree with you. Ma'am, sir, I disagree with you. But that is your right and your privilege. The God of creation is giving you that ability to say, I don't believe it. But if you're going to stand here and tell me you think that He's worth following, how dare you, Matthew Tilly? How dare you trust with him? How dare you want what you want and not what he wants? Will you follow Jesus? It's a simple request. I'm going to ask you right now. Put your trust in Jesus. And pray, I don't usually ask this, but I'm going to ask you to pray. Can you do... Um, I decided to follow Jesus. Do you mind doing that? I don't know whatever you're saying. I apologize, but I, you don't mind doing that. He's going to come play that. I'm going to ask y'all to stand. He's going to play a song that says we decided to follow Jesus. Now, I'm just going to ask you, have you decided to follow Jesus? If you have, why don't you go ahead and commit your heart to him?
Let's go ahead and do that now. Lord, please move among your people. Help us to follow you. Not follow after what we used to know or what our heart wants, but what you want, God. Though the path is going to be long and hard, though suffering is sure to come, help us to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name.